most of you know that we have an opportunity here at the Upper Room, or we give an opportunity. We try and do it every week. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way, but we always want to give an opportunity for people who have the gift of teaching to come up and exhort the family. Basically, we all know that week after week, we're sick of hearing me on this microphone, and so we try and change it up, have a little flavor. And uh, so this week, uh, we have someone, uh, a man that needs no introduction at this study, Um, mostly because I've been turning around and talking to him the whole night so far already. But if you don't know Robert, Robert is, uh, Robert's the kind of guy that Just make sure everything is running perfectly, just sort of behind the scenes. He's always that guy that's just making sure, if you're at a Bible study that that Robert is at, you can be pretty sure that he's the guy making sure that it goes off without a hitch. Robert just has these great gifts of administration and being able to make things happen and be able to keep tabs on someone like me, where I don't know what I'm doing from one day to the next. And so Robert reminds me, hey, it's Tuesday, you're teaching tonight. I'm just kidding, he doesn't have to do that. That would be pretty bad, but but Robert does make this study run. He makes it purr, but aside from having these great administrative gifts, Robert is a great, great loving brother who's always encouraging, always exhorting, and always discipling many of us. If you know Robert well, I'm sure you can think back many times that Robert has either called you out for doing something really stupid, or at least me, Or that Robert has just taken time out of his day to love on you and pour into you and just encourage you in your walk and pray for you. Aside from these great gifts, Robert does have a gift of teaching, uh, which is why we try and get Robert up here on the mic as often as possible. And uh, so without any further ado, uh, join with me in welcoming to the mic, Robert. How are you guys doing tonight? Well, today is a, it's a little bit special for me. Um, my brother's here. My brother's never heard me teach. Um, and my mom and my nieces here are here, who I love very much. Um, so the, the title of my message tonight is, is not really a title. It's a question. And the, the question is, do you have right perspective of God? I'm going to be in um, Psalms 23, and while you turn there, I'm going to talk a little bit about right perspective. For the past few months, I've been going out with a group on Saturday nights to uh, witness to people on the streets, and a lot of them have wrong perspective of who God really is. And in my opinion, right perspective of God is everything. Um, so that when life doesn't go the way that you want it to, when when you lose your job or sickness comes or someone breaks your heart or you have something going on that you just don't even understand why it's going on, right perspective is going to get you through it. Um, just a little bit about Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is probably one of the most famous psalms um, because it does this. It gives us right perspective. And it's famous for being read at funeral services because at a funeral is when you need right perspective the most. 
But I think that just having right perspective throughout your life is beneficial. Uh, just a little bit of um, Psalm 23, just a little introduction to it. It's written by David, shepherd boy. Um, the Bible often refers to us as a sheep. And if you know a sheep, sheep aren't really the smartest animals. Uh, they've been known to walk off of cliffs, uh, just wander away, um, to even follow other sheep off a cliff. And they've even been held at bay by squirrels. They're defenseless. Um, and believe me, I would rather be compared to something cooler like a lion or something like that. Um, but i probably the first to admit that I am a sheep um, and I need a shepherd. And my shepherd is God. But Psalm 23, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it and then we can get into it. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me to lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He heals me in the path of... He, he leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you pray with me? (sighs) Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for this Bible in my hand, for your words for hearing me when I call on you, for being close. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me tonight, Lord, that not one word would be mine, but they would all be yours. And if there be anything that isn't from you, Lord, that it would fall on deaf ears. But you would give the people ears to hear, and that you would soften their hearts to what you have to say to them. I don't have anything, Lord. You have everything. So I just pray that you would be here tonight. I thank you, Lord, and I love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Verse 1. Verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. A better way to say that is, I will have all that I need. Um, I want to make, I really want to define the difference between a want and a need. A want is a desire, um, it's a, something that you wish for, you wish that you had. A need is something that's deemed necessary in the moment. The Bible talks a lot about need. Uh, one of my favorite verses is uh, Romans eight thirty two. It says, "He who shall not he who he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all." Shall he not with him also give us freely all things? God has already given us the greatest thing we could ever been given. Uh, it's worth more than a billion dollars. If somebody gave you a billion dollars and you needed one more dollar, you think they're going to hesitate to say, here, here's another dollar. It's nothing to them. But to our God, he has given us heaven. He's given us salvation for free. Would he not give us everything else that we need in our life? Um, There's another verse that talks in in regard to need, and it's um, 
Philippians 4.19, Paul writes, and my, and my God shall supply all, all your needs according to his riches and to his glory. To his riches and his glory, family. If you're lacking something, I would encourage you to really look at it and see if it's a want or a need. God promises to give you all that you need, but he's going to do it according to his glory, to his timing. He's our father. He knows what's best. Moving on to, to the next verse. He makes us to lay, to lie down by green pastures. Like I said, sheep are kind of skittish. They're easily disrupted. Um, and we are too. Something comes and it tends to cause us to be disturbed and, and we don't understand. Uh, but God can... Just as the shepherd would take the sheep and gently but firmly cause them to lay down, God can cause us to just be still. He does this through through sickness, through loss of a job, through through any kind of trial that comes before you. Sometimes God, sometimes we're in this mode of, I got this, God, I got it. I got it under control. You know, I'm just doing me. It's cool. Um, but God has something better for you. He has a plan for you. And sometimes you can miss out when you're running around trying to figure things out. And sometimes he will gently but firmly push you to your knees so that he'll seek, so that you will seek him, so that you will hear him. He has something for you. In Philippians, or sorry, in Romans 8.28, it says, God will work all things. Sorry. And we know that all things will work together for the good who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. Again, the important part of the verse is his purposes. His purposes, God's will. God's will for you is where you're safest. God's will for you is where you'll be happiest. God's will is what we all need and we should be seeking after. Verse verse 3, he shall restore my soul. One of the things I do at the church, and what I do in general, um, is I hear what's going on in people's lives. And I, I really do love hearing what's going on. I want to know what's going on in people's lives. I'm concerned with what's going on in people's lives. Uh, and I can see that when they when they tell me, it helps them with it. But when somebody comes to me and they tell me about all the things going on in life, I turn them back to God. That's the secret is Robert can't fix anything. I can't fix anything. God fixes things. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but with prayer and supplication, and thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God doesn't want you to worry. God doesn't want you to be anxious. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to tell him about what's going on. He is the one who will restore you. He is the one who will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. If there's something going on, family, and, and you need to tell somebody and you're ready, you're just exploding, but there's no one to tell, go tell God. 
He's the first person. He's the one who's going to take care of it. He restores your soul. The end of verse 3 says, he, la- he leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. If you're anything like me, you want everything to stay the same. You're just comfortable there. You want to be there. You don't want it to change. But this life is a walk with God. And when we're walking with God, the things around us change. As you go down the path, things change around you. And as those things change, you're being changed. And if you're standing in one spot, you're not going to get to change. When I look back at my life and I look at the things that God has done, I look back to the beginning of my walk and I see great things there. I see things that were comfortable, things that were cool, things where I had a good time. But as I've let him lead me down the path, he has shown me greater and greater things. Like I said, I'm one who wants to just stay in one spot. I want to be, I've been coming to this Bible study for six years. Um, but I recognize something that when I'm uncomfortable, when I do something absolutely outside of my character, God does great things. God has greater and greater things for you, family. You need to be walking down the path and letting him change you, letting him grow you, letting him make you greater and greater for his name's sake. Moving on to the next verse. um, Yea, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Life is full of peaks and valleys. We can't avoid them. They happen. The Bible says, Jesus said, it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Trials are going to happen. Lives are full of peaks and valleys. God never said to us that he would stop bad things from happening. He never said that this life would be easy. All he said that what all he said was I will walk through it with you. Just as the song the song said tonight, if God is for us, who can be against us? I can't think of anything more comforting than walking through life with the creator of the universe. And you know what family they the word death is used here to, to represent the thing that people fear most. They fear death. To them, it's the deepest and darkest valley, the one they don't understand. But in Mark five thirty six, it says, Jesus speaking again, don't be afraid, only believe. If you're walking through a valley, and it's the deepest, darkest valley you could ever think of. Just remember Jesus saying to you, I will be with you. And only believe me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, family. Only believe. Going to the next verse. Um, the end of verse 4 says, Your rod and your staff comfort me. A shepherd would carry a rod, which was basically a stick or a club. And then he would carry a staff, which was a long stick with a hook at the end. Um, the rod would be to 
to protect, to fend off enemies. Because like I said, sheep are, are defenseless. The shepherd would have to chase animals off. He would use it to defend the sheep. The staff was to reach over and grab them and bring, him, bring them close to him. Because sheep like to wander. They like to wander off in their own way. The staff, the, the rod was for protection and the staff was for direction. That's what our shepherd does. He protects us and he directs us. For the sake of time, I'm just going gonna, gonna to read through to the last verse and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it out. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The first part of verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It says, surely goodness, goodness and mercy, wrath and judgment don't follow us, family. Goodness and mercy do. If there's some sort of judgment or something from your past, it doesn't follow you. It doesn't matter. Goodness and mercy is what stays with you. The last part of the verse says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. David is saying, I will. David's saying with authority, I will go to heaven. And family, I just, I don't know all of you here. I don't know if you can say, I will. I will go to heaven and say it with authority. And I just want to remind you that the Bible says that there is only one way to heaven. He says that the the road to destruction is wide, but the path to heaven is is narrow. And Jesus said that there is only one one way to heaven, and that's through me. And the reason that there's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus, is this: is that in the beginning, man had communion with God in the garden. Adam had communion with God. And Adam sinned, and sin entered in. And separation happened where our sin caused a gap between us and God. And how do we bridge that gap? There's just no way to bridge that gap. The only way to bridge that gap back to God is that God came in the form of a man, and his name was Jesus, and he lived a sinless life. And he took on our sins the sins of the world. He would have done it even if it was just for you. But he took on our sins. He took our punishment. And he died. And he rose again in three days to prove that he was God. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. But it also says that you can be redeemed. You can be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And all you have to do is believe in your heart and speak with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, speak with your mouth, 
Turn from your sins and live a life after him. If you're unsure, or maybe even never made a commitment, this is your chance. This is your shot. All you have to do is believe and speak with your mouth. I'm not going to do an altar call. Um, but I just want you, where you're at, to just really decide if you can say with authority, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if I leave you with anything, family, I want you to really have right perspective of God. God is, God is the provider of our needs. God causes us to lay down to seek him. God protects us. God directs us. God walks with us through the deepest and the darkest valleys of life. He is our shepherd. He is our leader. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you allow me to pray for you, and then Tyler can come up. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for coming and living a righteous life for me. I thank you for coming and taking on my sins. I thank you for restoring my communion back to God. That I can come to him and I can talk to him. That he hears me when I call. That I've been forgiven of my sins. That I get to live in the house of the Lord forever. And Lord, I pray that if there be any here, Lord, that don't, that don't know you, well, they just need to be reassured, Lord, that they would be reassured. And that they would turn from their sin and they would turn to you. And they would just acknowledge that you are their Savior, that you are their shepherd. And Lord, I pray that you would bless all of these that are here. That you would give them that assurance in their heart. That you would bless them greatly. That you would keep them close to you. That you would not allow them to wander off. That if they need to be pushed down gently but firmly, you would do so. But that you would walk with them all of the days of their lives. Lord, I thank you and I love you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Rob. It's one of the sweetest psalms in the Bible. It really is. Well, it's that time of the night. We are going to continue on, family, through our study through the Bible. Again, if this is your first time, welcome to the Upper Room Bible Study. What's this place all about? What are we doing here? Well, we've committed as a family to read through the entire Bible, Genesis all the way through Revelation, a chapter a day. And then every seventh chapter, as only makes sense, every Tuesday we come here together and we go over that seventh chapter. And uh, so today we would... We would be in Numbers chapter 4. How many of you read this morning? Numbers chapter 4? Yes? No? Maybe? Bummer. Okay. Go home. Read Numbers chapter (laughs) 4. And then what happens tomorrow? We we read Numbers chapter 4 today, right? What happens tomorrow? Numbers chapter 5. That's right. Good job. Somebody got it. Where you at? Was that you, Richie? Way to count. Numbers chapter 5. 
No, but I encourage you, family, why do we do it? Why do we read a chapter a day together? Why do we come together and do this thing? Because if you will let it, the word of God will change your life. It will completely change your life. This isn't something, this isn't like a novel or a textbook that you can just read and take in information and after a couple of years just purge it out because it's not important to you anymore. The Bible says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And in fact, the Bible says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Which is why, you know, when people ask me like, okay, well, why, why are you in Leviticus or the book of Numbers? I mean, those don't make any sense. Those don't apply to us today. Wrong. All scripture is breathed out by God. Every single bit of it is inspired and literally breathed out onto the page by God. Why? So that you might be able to know better who he is and get closer to him. God's written the entire Bible, including the book of Numbers, as a love letter to you to see, so that you can see how he wants you to live your life in obedience to him. And so we are starting the book of Numbers. And so what I'd like to do tonight it's going to be a little bit shorter than normal. I'd like to do a little recap. So if you haven't been coming to the upper room, you're off the hook for tonight. But normally what I like, I like to hear some like dialogue between us as a family. Because if I'm just standing up here, I feel like you're going to fall asleep. And I feel like I might fall asleep too if I'm just talking at you the whole time. So I want to hear from you guys too, which is why I make these awkward hand gestures. This means like this is time for you to like say something. Um... And so I was, I was really hoping that we could go over and review all that we've studied so far here at the Upper Room Bible Study, and then we'll take a quick look at what we're going to see in the book of Numbers. So going back a little bit, going back, we are studying the Bible as a whole, right? But specifically, right now, we're studying the first five books of the Bible. They're known as the Pentateuch or the Torah or the Law. It was Richie all over it again. Oh, it was Jake. Okay, right on. Remember, awkward hand gesture. <laughs> the law. Why is it called the law? Well, it's called the law because in these five books of the Old Testament, the first five books, all written by Moses, the law is contained in them. Can anyone tell me how many commandments there were? If you're thinking ten you're wrong, okay? <laughs> Jeremy's right. There's 613 commandments in the law. 613 in all. The way I remember it, this is kind of a ridiculous way to remember it, but my mind works in ridiculous ways. There are 613 dimples on a golf ball, and that's how many laws there are in the Old Testament. So if you can count all the dimples on a golf ball, you'll know how many laws there are in the Old Testament. That's a great one, you know, if you're ever witnessing to somebody. This is a free little witnessing, you know, thing. When you can ask them, like, how many, how many laws do you think there are? You can tell them, go count the dimples on a golf ball and you'll know. There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Why 613? Why so many? What's the big deal? Well, you see, God has called us since after the fall, God has called us to live 
holy lives, right? Those who, are follow, those who follow him must live holy lives. And so these commands are, are given to us. Paul talks about it that they're like a teacher to show us how we're supposed to live. To show us how we're supposed to live. I love the Christian life, though. Because even though in the Old Testament, in the law, as we're studying these first five books of the Old Testament, there are 613 laws contained in them. The Christian life, you don't have to follow 613 laws. You don't have to. I know this sounds radical. Don't, don't stone me, okay? You don't have to follow every single command in the Old Testament. You just have to follow two. We're studying the entire Bible as a family, the Upper Room Bible Study. We're studying the entire Bible through two statements of Jesus. Jesus said that all the law and all the prophets, basically the entire Bible, can be summed up in these two commands. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets, every single one of the 613 commands that's found in these first five books of the Old Testament, every single one of them falls into one of these two categories. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, zooming in a little bit on our study, that's just the the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, written by Moses containing the law, 613 of them. But when we first started together as a family, what book did we start in? Genesis. It only makes sense. That's the first book. If you didn't know that, you can open up the table of contents to your Bible. It's the first one there, Genesis. Genesis, as we studied it, was the book of, anyone remember? Beginnings. Wow, great job. Family, I'm so impressed. You got this. Genesis was the book of beginnings. Why? Because it's literally the beginning of the Bible. In a sense, the book of Genesis is like the prologue to the rest of creation. I never read the prologue in a book. I just go straight to chapter 1. But when I do that, I usually miss some important insight from the author. And that's what Genesis is. Genesis is the, the preface or the prologue to the book of creation. And it was a pretty important book. In the book of Genesis, we saw two major themes. We saw two things happening. The first was God showing his glory through his creation. And does anyone remember what the second one was? It was God showing his glory through his special people. God showing his glory through his special people. We see God displaying his glory through creation, specifically and especially in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that you see, God created. Romans chapter 1 talks about the fact that the invisible attributes of God, namely his divine nature and his power, are clearly perceived from the beginning of creation. It's easy for us to see who God is. It's easy for us to see that God is real. And it's easy for us to see how powerful God is by taking a look outside at creation. It's incredible all the things that he's made. God displays his glory through creation. And then the second thing that we studied in in Genesis was pretty much the rest of the book of Genesis after Genesis 3 was God displaying his glory through his special people. 
We looked at a a few key figures in the book of Genesis. They were Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and, and the last one, Joseph. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we got to see God displaying his glory in a, a whole great and many different ways through these special people, but every single one of them, he made a promise. He made a promise to them. What was that promise? Basically. They were all a little bit different, but basically, what was the promise? That they would be a great nation. The people of Israel, the descendants of specifically Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that they would be a great nation. That they would be so numerous that you could count the stars in the sky. And that they would inhabit the promised land, right? The promised land was the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan, right? And so in the book of Genesis, we get to see God displaying his glory in these amazing ways. And the book of Genesis ends there. Creation all the way through Joseph, where Joseph and all of his brothers begin to live in the land of Egypt. Well, Exodus chapter 1 picks up there in Egypt. Exodus was the book of of salvation. It was the book of salvation. Right? What happened in in Exodus chapter 1? No, Exodus chapter 1. Wrong book. Good. Good chapter, wrong book. Exodus chapter 1. All of Israel was oppressed. They did. They got to be so big. There were so many of them that the Egyptians started to get a little scared and a little intimidated at how many uh, Israelites there were in the land of Egypt. And so what did they do? They enslaved them. They enslaved them. And so Israel begins to cry out to God to save them. God hears their voice. And Exodus chapter 1 and 2 deal with the calling out of this great man of God, and his name was Moses. Besides God, Moses is probably the number one key star, in a sense, in the story of Exodus, right? He's the key figure besides God. And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we cover the first 40 years of his life, of Moses being called out. He ends up killing an Egyptian and hightailing it to the middle of nowhere, where he just decides he's going to live out his life just feeling a little bit dejected and and alone out in the, the wilderness. But God even calls him out from the wilderness and says, you're going to save your people. Okay, I'm going to use you to save the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses, after some great argument with God, deliberation, finally agrees. Okay, I'll go. God, you want me to go? I'll go. He goes to Egypt goes up to Pharaoh, let my people go, right? As depicted so well by Charlton Heston. Let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh says, no. So Moses goes to him again and again and again, let my people go. Pharaoh says again and again and again, no. And so what happens? God pours out his wrath on Egypt, right? And so finally Pharaoh relents. He says, all right, fine, get out of here. I don't, want you, I don't want you here anymore. You've caused me so much grief. Just take your people and go. And so Moses takes the entire nation of Israel 
and takes them out of the land of Egypt, right? They get to the Red Sea and they're backed in a corner. Why? Pharaoh decides he's going to change his mind and chase after Israel. He chases after them. God intervenes yet again and God splits the Red Sea and Israel crosses through on dry ground. They cross through on dry ground. They get to the other side. Pharaoh and his chariots are chasing after him. What happens? God lets the water down, drowns Pharaoh and all of his chariots, right? All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't bring Israel back to Egypt again. You know, it's interesting. Um, This is a total rabbit trail, side note, but this is actually really cool. Uh, A friend of mine was recently um, doing a study on... uh, the whole exodus and sort of proving its its validity right and actually in the red sea there are chariot wheels all throughout the red sea there's chariots entire chariots in the red sea and uh, this was really cool he sho- he's showing me all these pictures right of these chariot wheels that are sort of sticking out out of the bottom of the red sea and uh, corals growing on all of them but he showed me one specific wheel that there's no coral growing on and I was like, and I asked him, well, why isn't there any cor- coral growing on that wheel? And the reason is, is because that chariot wheel is made of pure gold. I wonder whose chariot that was. Here lies Pharaoh in all his glory, right? In his golden chariot. They get to the other side of the Red Sea and they have this great celebration. They worship and praise God. Why? Because he has saved them from the land of Egypt. And so they set out from there, from that side of the Red Sea, and and make their way to some springs. The bitter springs at Marah. And what did we see all too quickly? Israel forgets what God has done for them. And they cry out complaining. You brought us out here to die. We're just going to die of thirst in the wilderness. And so God provides for them, and they make their way to the Mount Sinai, which is where not only the book of Exodus, but the book of Leviticus takes place, there at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 1 and 2 take up a 40-year span of time. Exodus 3, all the way through the book of Leviticus, take up about the span of one year or so, between one and two years, all happen there at Mount Sinai. Before we get into reviewing the book of Leviticus, I forgot to go over the theme of the book of Exodus, right? We saw it was the book of salvation, but we studied two main themes in the book of Exodus. The first is a long one, so I'll say it. And the second one, counting on you guys. The first theme that we saw in the book of Exodus was that God orchestrates everything to save a special people for his glory. God orchestrates everything, including the the rise of Pharaoh, Moses killing an Egyptian, hightailing it to the wilderness, running into the burning bush, going back, Pharaoh being this hard-hearted man. God orchestrates all these things out to save this special people for his glory. The second, though, the second theme that we saw in the book of Exodus, and this took a little bit of digging, right? But the second theme in the book of Exodus was, anyone? Maybe? No? Okay, that's fine. The second theme that we saw in the book of Exodus is that the book of Exodus is about separation from the world. Egypt is a type of the world or a picture of the world. 
the things that Egypt does is a type of sin. It's a picture of sin. And so the book of Exodus is, in a sense, a big picture about how God is calling us out of the world, orchestrating everything to save us, a special people. Why are we special? For no other reason other than that he looks at us as special. We're nothing, it's nothing of ourselves, but only of his, of his grace. God orchestrates everything to save a special people for his glory. And God is calling us out of Egypt, out of the world, out of slavery to sin, and calling us into his promised land. Then we took a look at the book of Leviticus, right? Leviticus is the book of? Oh, this was so fresh. We should get this holiness. Leviticus is the book of holiness, right? The entire book of Leviticus, most of us look at Leviticus as the biggest rule book in the Bible, maybe besides Deuteronomy, which is also a bunch of rules. But Leviticus is nothing but a bunch of rules and regulations which have nothing to do with us, right? Wrong. Wrong. We saw three things as we studied the book of Leviticus. I know that this might be a little bit laboring, but please bear with me. Let's finish this uh, review process, family. We saw three things in the book of Leviticus. The first one was, anyone? God's glory. Or, I'm sorry, God's holiness. The holiness of God. Leviticus being the book of holiness. Who is more holy than God? No one. Nothing. The book of Leviticus has much to do with God's holiness. And we saw that time and time and time again. Especially when we studied last week. You remember there was the Israel, the son of the Israelite woman and the Egyptian man. He, w- he got in a fight with an Israelite, right? And he blasphemed God's name. What happened to him? He got stoned. He got stoned. Basically what happened is everyone, the entire camp of Israel comes around him. The people who witnessed him blaspheme God's name put their hands on his head. And sort of testify, we saw this guy blaspheme God's name. They all took rocks and threw them at him and stoned him. Why? Why would anyone... I mean, he just said God. He took God's name in vain. I mean, what's, what's the big deal about that? I mean, I, I go through my day all the time and I stub my toe and I say, Man, Jesus. I mean, what's the big deal? Listen. God takes his holiness... Very, 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 very seriously. God takes his name very seriously. Not only was the book of Leviticus about God's holiness, though, but it was about the holy standard for us, his people, right? The book of Leviticus was about the holy standard for his people, and that's why all of these laws and rules and regulations are laid forth to set Israel aside. This is where all the sacrifices come into play and all these rules about ritual holiness. And if you, if you sit on a seat that uh, a woman was in her period, if she sits on a chair and you sit on that chair, you're now unclean. You have to go outside the city walls, bathe, be, uh, be unclean for a day, and at nightfall you'll be clean. If you cut yourself and bleed, you'll be unclean for a day. Go outside the city walls, bathe, wash your clothes, come back in the city, and at nightfall you'll be clean. All of these ridiculous rituals and rites and rules for 
the holiness of, of God's people. Why? What's the purpose? It's a picture to us of this. The people of Israel had to do all these ridiculous things, right? To appear holy, to appear clean, to be holy before God. But we as Christians, do we have to do any of these things anymore? No. Why? Christ lived a perfect life so that you wouldn't have to. And so as we study the book of Leviticus and as we read this holy standard for God's people, we get to say, thank you, Jesus, that you did what you did, if for no other reason so that I don't have to go through that to be near you. Because what's the third thing we saw as we studied the the book of Leviticus? We saw our sin. We saw our sin. Listen, family, the closer you get to God and the closer you see his holiness and the more you study his word and you see his holy standard for his people, you see how you fall short. I look at a... uh, at a Christian, and sometimes it's really easy to get really ticked at the Christian that is just so brokenhearted. You know, I have people come to me and, I need you to pray for me. I'm just so broken about my sin. I was driving down the street and I cut someone off and they honked at me and I thought a bad thought. And I, I, man, I, I really struggle with hatred for that person because I think, man, that's what you struggle with. You should be going to get in prayer from somebody else because, man, I, I struggle with so much tougher things than that. But listen, it's a godly thing that that person experiences. Because Christian, if you stand here today, if you're sitting in this room and you feel like, hey, you know, I've pretty much got it all together. I've got my sins pretty much in check. There's no blatant sins on my marquee. You can't look at my life and see anything tragic. I'm doing pretty good. You need to be very careful because chances are you're not very close to God. The closer and closer and closer you get to God and you see his holiness and the more you study his word and you see his holy standard for his people, the more you're going to realize your sinfulness. The more these little things like cutting someone off on the freeway or thinking a bad thought or stubbing your toe and cursing in your head, all of these things are going to seem so awful to you. Why? Because God is so perfect and so holy and you are so close to him that your sin screams at you. Like David, you might say, Oh God, my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. Everywhere I look, all I see is my sinfulness. Why? Because David saw God's holiness. And so that's where we're at so far at the Upper Room Bible Study. Now, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, how to make your life count. Ha ha ha. No, when I... When I think of Numbers, so often, it's weird, we shy away from the book of Numbers just like we do Leviticus, but for a slightly different reason. The book of Leviticus, it sounds weird, it sounds kind of scary, and so we just don't really go there as a church, right? We don't really want to read Leviticus, it's a bunch of rules anyway, who really cares? And especially when it comes to Numbers, 
If you've ever read the book of Numbers past chapter one, God bless you. God bless you. Because chapter one has to be, and I'm, I'm just going to go out there and say it, one of the most boring chapters in the entire Bible at first glance. I mean, all it is, is numbers. I mean, that's really what it is. Why is it called the book of Numbers? Because the entire first three chapters of the book are just all about numbers and it's counting the people and it's incredibly boring. So we don't even go there. As I was studying for, you know, the the book of Numbers and as I was sort of wrapping my mind around the book as a whole, I realized something really interesting. Pastors don't like to teach on the book of Numbers. In fact, I even heard of an Old Testament professor who told a pastor that the book of Numbers really was never intended to be taught. It was never meant to be taught. I couldn't uh, disagree more. I almost said agree. That would have been awkward. I couldn't disagree more. Like I said, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Let me ask you, family. How much of scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and training in righteousness? All of it. That's right, Kyle. Whole Bible. You got that one. Nailed it. The whole Bible. Including? (laughs) Easy. (laughs) Including? The book of Numbers. Numbers is the book of complaining, complaining, man. I really hate complainers. Nothing bothers me more than a complainer. So if you're a complainer, just get out and leave. No, I'm just kidding. Don't leave. (laughs) No, I hate people who complain. Nothing really bothers me more than people who just complain all the time. But you know, what's funny about that is that so often I can be the worst complainer. I can be the worst complainer. I remember one time, this was about, um, actually this was just in uh, January or so. So almost a year ago, I was at work and I would complain all the time that I didn't have anything to do. I remember going into my boss's office. I work at a church. I work at Harvest Christian Fellowship in the high school ministry. And I walked into my pastor's office and I said, Pastor Steve, you have given me nothing to do. I don't have anything to do here. I mean, I just come into work. I sit around. I have to make up work for myself. It's annoying. I'm sick of trying to create things to do. I don't have anything to do. Please give me work to do. Well, let me tell you, the worst thing you can ever do is walk into your boss's office and complain about not having work to do. (laughs) Not only did I complain to him and he just sort of brushed me off, rightly so. Complainers are annoying, and I would have been annoyed at myself, I'm sure. But I didn't just complain to him. I complained to everyone else, and I even complained to God. God, why don't I have more responsibility at work? I mean, I'm working in ministry, right, God? That's what you have me there for. Why don't I have more things to do, I said in the month of January. Well, the month of February quickly turned into the worst month of my life. 
all of a sudden we had like three massive projects that all got put on me. And it wasn't because I was complaining necessarily to my pastor, but it was because I was the only person really equipped and really with the time to be able to carry out these projects. I remember there was three or four nights in the month of February that I was at work at 3 a.m., I didn't even go home. I was just at work all night long because I had so much work to do and literally no time to do it in. It was nuts. I hated my life for that month. Why? Because I complained and I got exactly what I asked for. The book of Numbers is all about grumbling the book of grumbling, it's a book of, of complaining and it's a book of the Israelites time and time and time again grumbling and complaining before God. The book of Numbers can be broken up into three main sections by geographic location of sort of where it took place. Chapters 1 through 10 are all about God preparing his people to take the promised land. That's what's been happening sort of for the last year, right? They're at Mount Sinai. God is giving them commands. He's giving them the instructions for the tabernacle, instructions on how to march, how to arrange themselves when they camp, where they're to go, when they're to go, who they're to follow. God is preparing them, and that continues through the first 10 chapters of Numbers, just preparing the people to inherit the promised land, to go into the land of Canaan, and God is just going to lay down all their enemies before them. Chapters 11 through 17 all take place at a place called Kadesh, at a place called Kadesh. This is where Israel sort of, they march from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh, They're sort of on the, just before the hill that will overlook all the promised land. And they send 12 spies into the land, right? They send 12 spies into the land of Canaan. And these spies come back with what report? Hey, we should go in there. Let's do this thing. God's got our back. We got, no, that wasn't it at all. The spies go into the land and they come back and they report, hey, the land is great. It's flowing with milk and honey. You should look at this fruit we we brought back. The grapes are the size of Johnny over there. The fruit was huge, but so were the people. So were the people in the land of Canaan. They were giants, the Bible says. And so these spies come back and start complaining. They start grumbling and they get the entire camp of Israel to grumble and complain there at Kadesh that they can't do it. They can't inherit the promised land. And so what does God do? He gets ticked. (laughs) He gets ticked. And God commands the people of Israel to spend 40 years in the wilderness, which is what takes up For the most part, chapters 17 all the way through 36. The end of the book of Numbers covers about 38 or 39 years. Now, what was this? Was this just some mammoth-sized cosmic timeout from God? Go spend 40 years in the wilderness, in the corner, with your nose in the corner, and then come back. Then we'll talk. No, this wasn't that at all. Okay? 
The wilderness was not a time out place or period. It was a graveyard. It was a graveyard. Why the 40 years wandering in the wilderness? Well, rather than telling you, I figured that we could open up numbers and see for ourselves. So flip with me to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, and we're going to start reading there in verse 1. Numbers 14, 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, What would we had died in the land of Egypt? Or what that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's pretty intense what's happening here. The people of Israel, they come finally to the promised land. They've been waiting a year for this at Mount Sinai. God has been preparing them for over a year to inherit the promised land. And they get there and they say, forget it. I don't want it anymore. It's too scary. It's too hard. It doesn't look like I can do that. The people are giants. If we go in there, we're going to die. God, why would you do this? Why would you pull me out of my own old life in Egypt just so I could be slaughtered here? Hey, forget about it. Let's all get together. Let's figure out who is going to take us back to Egypt. Maybe the new Pharaoh will let us back and we'll be able to be slaves again in the land of Egypt. It seems ridiculous to us. But yet, family, often we feel this way about our own walks, about our own lives. Again, Egypt is a type of what? The world. God has called us out of the world, right? We used to live however we wanted to. We used to be enemies of God. We used to be enemies of God. Did you know that the Bible says if you're not a friend, you're an enemy of God? There's no fence sitters. And every single one of us, because of our sin, we were enemies of God. Slaves to sin in Egypt. But God miraculously broke our bondage to sin. By sending his son to die on the cross so that we could be free from sin. And he calls us out of the world and says, don't live like that anymore, but come with me. I have a promise for you. I want to take you into my kingdom. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's so much better than the life that you're living, living life with me. Let's go. Come on, come out of Egypt and come with me to the kingdom of heaven. And so we did. We we got up and we left Egypt. We left our old lives behind and we started to walk with God. But Jesus says this about walking with him. He says that the gate is narrow and there are few who enter by it. But more than just the gate being narrow, he says that the path is narrow and it's rough. 
and there's few who walk on it. Living life as a Christian, whoever told you that being a Christian was going to be easy, lied. They lied. Being a Christian isn't all daisies and rosebuds and, and skipping in a, in a lily field. And I, I'm running out of flowers that I can think of at the top of my head, but it wasn't flowery, okay? Okay, listen, being a Christian is difficult. Jesus says that the road is narrow. It's easy to slip off the path. He says it's rough. There's lots of uphills. There's lots of downhills. There's lots of big boulders to climb over. There's lots of obstacles in the way. And there are few who walk on that path. And so many Christians, after being called out of Egypt, they look at the road, they they come over a hill, and they see the road down the way. And they see that it's tough, that it's not easy, that it involves daily dying to yourself, picking up your cross, and following after Jesus. That it means saying, I don't care what I want anymore. I don't live for myself. I live in obedience to you, God. I want to climb the corporate ladder. I want to do well in college so that I can get a great career, so that I can climb the corporate ladder, so that I can have a great 401k plan, so that I can retire and have a bunch of kids and then a bunch of grandkids. And don't forget the white picket fence and the golden retriever. God, that's what I want but I don't care. Whatever you want. You died for me, so I'm going to live for you. That's what it means to be a Christian family. Dying to yourself. Picking up your cross daily and following after Jesus. Living like he did. Walking like he did. It's not easy. It's not convenient. It's not lilies and daisies and roses and pink and purple gumdrops and (laughs) it's difficult and so many christians they see the road ahead of them and they say forget it i'm going back to egypt i'm going back to the world god i didn't sign up for all this okay there's giants in the land my life is hard god You don't understand the struggles that I have to go through if I'm going to walk with you. If I'm going to be a Christian, I might be broke my whole life. God, you don't understand what it's like to have to to provide for a family while being a missionary. God, you don't understand how difficult it is for me to give 10% of my wages to you before taxes. God, that's hard. God, it's difficult. You don't understand what I'm going through here, God. I'm walking through life, and it seems like you don't care. It seems like you're not listening. It seems like my life is falling in the toilet, all because I'm trying to serve you. It's too hard. Forget it. I'm going back. I'm going back to Egypt. God's not okay with that. That's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not what it means to walk with him. But that's exactly what Israel did, right? Forget it, God. We're going back to Egypt. So what did God say in rebuttal? Let's start reading again in verse 20 of chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Let me pause right there. I forgot to give a 
very important filler. God was ready to kill all of them, okay? He's like, you're going to complain? Fine, it's over. I'll roast every single one of you. You saw what happened in Egypt. I'll just, I'll torch every last one of you, okay? Forget it. And Moses and Aaron, they fall on their faces before God and they plead with him, God, don't, don't kill all of Israel. Don't kill the people. Don't roast them. Don't end it now. God, if you do that, then all of Egypt will, will say that you weren't strong enough to fulfill your promise. That you weren't holy and righteous enough to fill your, fulfill your promise. God, please don't roast these people. Please don't kill them all. And so God says, okay, I won't. This way he says, though, in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen the gl- my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now therefore, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. As I said, the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness that they were to wander. It wasn't a timeout. It was a death sentence. The wilderness wasn't, uh, in a sense, like a, a jail cell. It was a graveyard. The wilderness wanderings was designed so that every single person who left the land of Egypt, who saw all that God did, all the miracles that he did, all the plagues that we talked about already. The miracle of him parting the Red Sea and them going to the other side. The miracle of him turning these bitter springs at Mara into clean, pure water for them to drink. The miracle at Mount Sinai of God dwelling in the, amongst the people. God says every single person who's seen that yet has despised me and rebelled against me, every last one of you is going to die before I let you into the promised land. And that's what the book of Numbers is about. That's the purpose of the book of Numbers. So that begs the question of this. Why even study Numbers? Why study the book of Numbers? I mean, if Old Testament professors say that the book of Numbers was never meant to be taught, and if countless pastors have never taught a message in the book of Numbers in their entire careers, many people have never heard a message out of Numbers in their entire lives. Why study it? Why are we here today going against the flow and trying to be rebels here studying the book of Numbers? The answer can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Please flip over there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10, we're coming to a close with this. 
Please read with me in verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in, uh, in the cloud in the sea. Did I skip a line there somewhere? That didn't make sense to me. Let me try again. <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed, that followed them, pardon me, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place, listen, verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with all the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Why study the book of Numbers? Why study the book of Numbers? Here's why. If anyone in here thinks he's a solid Christian, grounded in the Lord, Or she is a solid Christian, he or she. Sorry, I didn't make that distinction. Grounded in the Lord. We're not sexist at the Upper Room Bible say. I just wanted to make that clear. If you're here today and you believe, you say like Robert came up here and and spoke about just a little bit ago with complete confidence, I will go to heaven. And you look at your life, you, take a, you examine yourself, as Paul encourages us to do, to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. And you look at yourself and say, I've got it all together. I'm not fooling around with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm not going out and partying. I'm not getting drunk all the time. I'm not doing drugs. I'm going to church every single Sunday and midweek. And I'm here at the upper room. I got it all together. I don't need to worry about this sin or that sin in my life. I don't need to read about all the blunders of Israel in the book of Numbers as they grumbled and complained against God. Because I've got it all together. I've got faith like a rock, baby. I'm not shaken when things get intense. I've got it all together. If anyone thinks that that he stands... Take heed lest you fall. Why study the book of Numbers? The book of Numbers is filled with Israel's grumbling 
Israel's complaining against God. Israel's turning their backs on him in rebellion. Israel's sinning against him. Why study the book of Numbers? Paul makes it really clear. These things were written to us so that we wouldn't go and do the same. These things were written for us in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is written so that we wouldn't repeat the mistakes that Israel made. So what's the mistake? The, the epic fail for Israel. What was it? I'll give you a hint. The book of Numbers is the book of? Complaining. Grumbling and complaining. Murmur, 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 murmur. Grumbling and complaining. Listen. Christian. This is where it hits home. This is where it all comes together. Okay? I know that life is tough. I know that things are difficult. I know that it's hard to walk with God. I know that it's not easy to have faith in him and to trust him. But listen, don't grumble and complain against him. Don't make the mistake that Israel did. Because here's the thing about grumbling and here's the thing about complaining. Listen, grumbling and complaining is rooted in fear. Okay? And fear is ultimately rooted in disbelief, in faithlessness. Why did God make the command, hey, every single one of you who saw my miracles, who encountered my presence, who saw my glory, every single one of you who came out of Egypt that saw all of those signs and wonders, that saw the Red Sea turn to blood, that saw the land be inhabited with frogs, that saw flies and gnats cover the land of Egypt, but not the land of Goshen where Israel was. Every single one of you who saw the firstborn among all of Egypt die. Every single one of you who saw the Red Sea parted and walked through it. Every single one of you that saw my glory in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Every single one of you that heard my commands and saw my glory. None of you who have grumbled and complained against me, will enter into the promised land. Why? Because they knew God was good. They knew God was good, and they turned their back on him. They knew God could provide because they saw him provide time and time again. They knew he could protect because they saw him protect time and time again. They saw manna fall from heaven to feed them miraculously. They saw water come out of a rock. They saw God protect them from Egypt as they came down on them with all their horses and all their chariots. The entire Egyptian army is bearing down on Israel and they saw God protect them. Yet they look at the promised land and they say, God can't protect me from this. God did all this amazing stuff in my life, but he can't do this. God was able to break my addiction to alcohol or drugs or pornography, but God can't, God can't possibly 
take me into the promised land. God can't possibly take away this sin in my life. God can't possibly deal with this problem or this complication. God can't possibly deal with this cancer or the de- this death of a loved one. God can't possibly still be God in the midst of my parents' divorce or my divorce. God can't possibly be able to handle the fact that my best friend has just come out that They're a homosexual. Listen. He can. He can. The God who parted the Red Sea. The God who miraculously saved Egypt, or saved Israel from the clutches of Egypt. Listen, family, listen. The God who created the heavens and the earth the God who causes all the planets to continue to spin in perpetual motion and holds the entire universe in the span of his hand. The God that sent his son to die on the cross for your sin and my sin, for your guilt and for my shame. The God that made a way for you to be reconciled to him and have a right relationship with him loves you. He's there for you. He cares for you. And listen, not only does he have a plan, but he has a promise for you. A promised land just for you like he had for Israel. And just like Israel, as we're going to see in the book of Joshua, after the wilderness wanderings, Israel goes boldly into the promised land and God lays down their enemies before them. They don't even have to fight The people just drop their weapons and run. God is there for you. And I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what Mount Everest of sin you're looking at. I don't know what inconquerable hill of calamity is in your life right now. But I do know this. The God who who did all these things sits on the throne still. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to grumble. And you don't need to complain. Why? God is in control. God is in control. And he does all things well. I want to remind you of two scripture memory verses that each and every one of you should have tucked away in your mind, okay? The first is for the people of Israel, but it applies to us in the same way. Listen, Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Listen, those of you who are hurting tonight, those of you who are stuck in a rut of sin, Those of you that have problems going on, you've lost your job or you can't find work. Your family's falling apart. Listen, God knows the plans that he has for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and listen, a hope. Romans 8, 28 and 29. God says, all things work together for the good 
For those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, that's you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Listen, I don't know what you're going through today, but all things work together for the good. And what's that good? Verse 29 tells us it's that you might look more like Jesus. That you could be more Christ-like so that you could walk with him more closely, so that you could be nearer to God, so that you could have a better relationship with him. So that you could be more and more and more and more and more holy. God knows what he's doing. He does all things well. He sits on the throne. And so unlike Israel family, listen. Let's not grumble. Let's not complain. Let's not be afraid. For the Lord is with you wherever you go. Father, thank you for this great encouragement from your word. And God, thank you for the book of Numbers, that even though, God, we're so tempted to neglect it, because it's pretty intimidating. God, thank you that you have placed this in your word. And God, that you've even organized and orchestrated this Bible study to be going through the book of Numbers at this time, just for us. God, I know that you wrote the book of Numbers specifically for each and every one of us here, with every single one of us in mind, with all of our problems and all of our pains in mind. You wrote this book to give us hope that we could trust in you, that we wouldn't need to grumble and complain and be afraid, but that we could put all of our hope in you, God. Lord, I pray that we would never forget this, but that every single day we would wake up remembering that you have a plan and a purpose for our life. And God, more importantly, that you have a promised land that you've called us out of the world to come to. And all we need to do is continue to look to you. Fixing our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And one day we'll finish that race. One day we'll enter into that promised land. One day we'll get to spend eternity with you, God, and it'll be sweet. God, please don't let us forget that. Let that be what drives us every single morning of every single day for the rest of our lives, God is the hope that we have in you. The hope that we have in you, Jesus, that though in this life we'll face many persecutions, many problems, many trials, that we can have hope. We can be of good cheer. We can take heart because you, Jesus, have overcome the world. Thank you for that, God. And so we're going to worship you forever. You get it all, Lord. All the glory, all the honor, all the praise, all the power, God, forever and ever, you get our lives. It's in your precious son's name we pray this. Amen.